Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The following episode contains disturbing and graphic accounts of survivor experiences. It may not be suitable for younger audiences. Please listen with care. From iHeartRadio, London Audio, and executive producer Paris Hilton, this is Trapped in Treatment. We're your hosts, Rebecca Mellinger and Caroline Cole, one troubled teen industry survivor and one investigator on a mission to expose the truths of an industry plagued by controversy and to make sure that no child has to experience the hell that is teen treatment. Wow, last episode was heavy, wasn't it, Caroline? It really was. I've heard hundreds of survivor stories within our community, and they never stop being agonizing and like physically grueling to hear. What's so, so scary is that this is still happening. Today, we examine the tactics of isolation and manipulation that make time within Provo Canyon School so traumatizing. From the moment a child is enrolled at PCS, the ties to family are immediately cut. It starts with the decision to hire a third party to transport the kids at the suggestion of the school. It's safer, they say, less traumatic. Parents slowly begin to let go, to trust these strangers and their ready responses. They don't realize that within the methodology at PCS is the belief that the child must be uprooted from their communities, their identity, and their ability to communicate with the outside world. A question often asked of survivors is why don't you just tell your parents how bad it was? Why didn't you just write home and tell them to come get you? It's a simple question with a complex and multi-layered answer. Today, 
Today, we're going to hear Trisha's story, the aunt of a young boy sent away just last year. And this story is really important because it's recent. Decades after the ACLU case that banned solitary confinement, polygraph tests, the use of physical force, and the censorship of communication and mail, Trisha still struggles to communicate with him. She's conscious of the rules of the program and doesn't believe that much has changed. Isolation and control are still the name of the game. James Thomas was sent away just last year. He's only 12 years old, so for his safety, his name has been changed. James was a healthy and bright kid. In March of 2021, he was taken into custody by State Child Protective Services. His aunt has been fighting desperately to gain custody of her nephew, but was ultimately denied that right by the courts. Instead, he was sent away to Provo Canyon School. It was kind of shocking because I literally saw Paris Hilton's video randomly. It just popped up on my feed right before all this happened. And I really, it's pretty insane to me. I went to school for social services. I had never even heard about these types of places ever in my 31 years of life, being a social service major. And this random video popped up and I remember talking to the social worker and she said, well, your nephew's going to a boarding school. And I was like, oh, okay. And I was like, oh, so it's like school and stuff. And like, I really didn't, it wasn't clicking quite yet. And she had said, yeah, it's therapeutic. And I go, oh, really? There's like therapy there and all that, you know, cool. All right. He's got therapy, counseling, and he's going to, his grades are going to get great. That's great. Until I can get him out. Trisha did her due diligence and began researching where her nephew would spend the next few months. She hoped it was a school where he would get an education and maybe make some friends. When she realized it was PCS, she felt quite differently. I sat there for a minute and it was like someone socked me in the stomach or something. Like there was like this heart wrenching, like, why am I feeling this way? Why does this name like ring a bell? And then it hit me. It was that video I watched with Paris Hilton. And if I wouldn't have like seen that video, I would have had no idea. For Trisha, whose nephew's in the foster care system, ease of communication was non-existent. At that point, I, I knew he'd be isolated just from the first video I ever saw. And they had made that clear to me when I tried to call. Uh, and I think for two weeks, I just cried, you know, because I just kept thinking of my little nephew scared on a cot, wherever he is, you know, and not allowed to talk to his family. And what kind of treatment center are you when your method of treatment is removing an individual from their entire family, especially young children? She had to fight for contact. And when she finally was able to speak with him, their calls were monitored. It was about three and a half weeks until I got to actually talk to him. Our first conversation was, how did you find me and this and that? And we got to Zoom. There was always somebody in the room at every point. Um, You could hear them typing or you could see him look over at somebody often. His body language spoke volumes. Um, I mean, that was the thing that upset me the most, his body language, like without him saying anything. Trisha felt deep down like James wasn't being truthful during their monitored calls and wondered what was really happening behind Provo's closed doors. Over the next few months, 
her nephew changed in small ways. Each short visit or call displayed a boy under duress, uncomfortable, agitated, and trying desperately to communicate with his aunt. There was this moment where he said, he was trying to tell me something really quick. And this was, this was during a phone conversation, not a Zoom. And he was like, hey, like, when are you going to get me out of here? I need you to get me out of here, blah, blah, blah. You know, and I was like, okay. And then it was just like this guy walking in and you can hear a man walking in and he goes, yeah, so anyway, yeah, everything's been great. It was like, he was never his authentic self. He was never comfortable. And I was looking at somebody who had fear in their eyes. Unable to speak freely, he found other ways to communicate his distress. And he was he was making this as the game, like, what if, like, what if you were in a tornado? Would you A, grab a parachute or would you B, uh, go in a bunker? And then you'd be like, you know, B, go in a bunker because that's safer. Or A, I'd go in the parachute and fly around the tornado. <laughs> um, but that's the game he was talking about. What if? And he said, so what if somebody, people were torturing Kira? Would you A, just pick up the phone and merely call her? Or B, would you do something? And before I even got the answer, he said, I think the answer is pretty obvious. You do something, right? You do something. And I said, um, I got you. Yeah. Yeah, I would. Mm -hmm. I would do something. And he goes, yeah, see, that's my point. That was my point. And then he no longer wanted to play the game anymore. It was one round. And that's what he wanted to tell me. Um. And I, I don't really have words for that at all. Because honestly, until he's out of there completely, I don't know what they did. I don't know what, what all they did, but I know they did something. One day, shortly before Trisha's last call with James, she received an email. Provo Canyon School emailed James' social worker before the call, verbatim it reads, We are going to facilitate this call today with James and his aunt. I do want to request that you let the aunt know that she is not to speak to James about discharging or transferring to another facility. James is already struggling, and we do not need anything that will make it more difficult for him. I would appreciate if his aunt could encourage him to do well and to follow the rules and keep the conversation around those topics. Because Trisha had seen Paris's documentary, she knew that the calls could be ended for any reason, if staff heard her or James speaking negatively about the program. It was her job to support the program, if she wanted to continue speaking with her nephew. Luckily, Trisha's nephew was released from Provo Canyon just a few months later. She was finally able to speak to him, hug him, and tell him that nothing was wrong with him, that she had tried her best to get him out. But James' story stuck with us. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. 
Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right at the beginning, there's a wedge driven between the family and the child. There's physical separation, sure, between magnetically locked doors and sometimes thousands of miles between the youth and their home. But most importantly, there's a degree of distrust that's created. And this is the most dangerous. Plus, these kids have already been framed, whether true or not, to be troubled and untrustworthy. So it's easy to believe that maybe they're exaggerating about what's happening. Exactly. But what we see is that once that child arrives at the facility, the program immediately tells the parent, your child's going to try and manipulate you, they're going to lie and say that all kinds of things are happening, don't believe them. And on top of that, these kids are being told that being negative, resisting the program, or saying what's happening to you will only keep you there longer. So eventually you just surrender and go with the program. We have a copy of an older parent handbook that actually states, if your child's telephone calls are used in an attempt to manipulate or to pressure you for visits, please support school policies and notify his or her primary therapist. If we dissect that language, it would seem that PCS is instructing the parents that in the case of their child asking for more visits, to tell on their child by reporting it to the therapist. I mean, how odd to ask a parent to report on their child's request for more visits, more interaction. The school's efforts to block communication was more than just an innocent attempt at keeping the kids in line. It was manipulation. Sure, for the parents, it was frustrating. But for the young adults locked inside, this could be construed as proof that maybe they really were bad and maybe their parents really didn't care. I don't remember direct words. It was along the lines of, 
if your family loved you, you would already be home. Um, but you're here. So obviously they don't care. Did you internalize that? Did you believe it? For a while. Um, I struggled after I got out of my program. I genuinely thought my parents didn't love me because I mean, look at all these red flags that I didn't realize that they didn't know about at the time. Um, and I was still there, so it was hard not to believe it. But for PCS survivor Jack Hendry and his grandmother, it was not odd. It was suspicious. Back up. Give me some context. What happened? So basically every day I would write my grandma. And my grandma basically had enough of trying to figure out what was going on. So she was calling the front desk. So my therapist got wind of this and freaked out, completely freaked out, um, pulled me out of school when I was in study in the library and it was not a normal therapy day, pulls me out and for about 30 minutes is trying to drill me about why is my grandma calling to figure out what's going on with me. So, you know, she was the only one actually getting what the hell was going on. Like, okay, he's actually in trouble. So in any case, um, they, you know, she drills me for about 30 minutes then gets my parents on the phone. So for another 30 minutes, you know, we're going, basically she starts questioning them. Why is his grandma calling? And they're like, we don't know. Like, <laughs> you know, like they don't have control over my grandma. So <laughs> and she's an OG. She's great. <laughs> you know, there was a great lady, sweet, kind, but you didn't want to piss her off. <laughs> so in any case, you know, she's trying to figure out what the hell is going on. And so like, she can't get an answer. So eventually, you know, my therapist is like, you know, ah, oh, what the hell? And hangs up the phone. His therapist hung up the phone, but didn't hang up the speaker. For the next 30 minutes, she proceeded to berate Jack, a full-on abusive freak out. And then something unthinkable happened. Maybe like 20 so minutes into it, you know, almost 30 minutes into it, all of a sudden I hear my mom go, What the hell? <laughs> and I was like, Yes! <laughs> you bitch, you found out. You just got exposed, bitch. <laughs> like, wow, that's yeah. incredible. The relief was overwhelming. So I, I had this like grin as she sent me out the room and she was talking to my parents back and forth. And she's like, Well, you won. You get it. You get to be transferred. You know, caseloads. That is just an incredibly <laughs> like satisfying story. I'm sure you were so felt like such redemption when your parents heard your therapist saying all this stuff. But until my mom said that one line, just relief, just waves of relief came over me. I was like, thank God, she was on that phone. <laughs> God, I was like crying. Absolutely, was, like, emotional as hell. I was like, whoa, I don't get like that, but. Yeah, that was one of those moments. Jack was transferred after this incident and considered himself lucky. He realized the truth, that his grandmother and parents had not been receiving his letters at all and that it was Provo, not them, that he had to blame. For Jeremy Whitley, who was enrolled at 15, that moment of truth came years later. I wrote, I wrote my parents several letters and told them what this place is abusive and it's nothing like they told me it was. And I never heard from my parents. Like, um, 
And so that was that was probably the hardest thing. And and that also set up a story in my head that I carried around for a long time because I was writing my parents, telling them about it, and they weren't responding. It wasn't until the release of This Is Paris that Jeremy confronted his parents about their silence while he was enrolled. When Paris's documentary came out, I, I told I told my parents about it. I'm like, hey, I just want I want you to have a heads up. This is coming out. So after my parents watched it, my parents had pretty much the same reaction as Paris's mom did. And I asked my parents, I'm like, didn't you get any of my letters about me telling you about the abuse? Because they had they had no idea. Sure. And uh, my mom said that they didn't get anything from me for the first three months I was there. His mother shared that she did get suspicious after getting reports about his behavior from staff that didn't seem to make any sense. The school would tell them that I was in trouble all the time. I, I wasn't making progress. I wasn't doing very well. I was getting in fights with other kids. And and that's all. And the stories were always super vague. And so my mom, my mom said she started getting very suspicious. I mean, and she started asking, like, okay, he's not getting any better. Then what are we doing? Um, and so my mom started asking for specifics, like, who did I get in a fight with? What time did it happen? And all that kind of stuff. And the school couldn't tell them. Um, and so that's when they decided to pull me out of there. Um, oh, wow. So they had been lying to your parents the entire time. Yeah. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jeremy and Jack were trapped in treatment, unable to talk to anyone they love. It's devastating that Jeremy's parents never received the letters, and even more devastating that he thought they did for years and that they chose not to come and save him. But even writing those letters could have serious implications. Jonathan Newman, a survivor who attended Provo back in 1984, explains this in detail. I mean, I would wake up in the middle of the night at 2 o'clock in the morning, they'd be ripping the guy below me out of his bed, put him in a straitjacket, sheet of Thorazine, because he wrote a letter to his mom that they read before the outgoing mail about what they were doing to him. You know, and, you know, they would censor your mail. If you would still allow them to write a letter home, you put it in this box. Well, they opened every envelope and readdressed it with a digital label and sent it to the parents in bulk. But that was only after your therapist read your mail. And then any incoming mail that you would get, your therapist opened and read and went through thoroughly. Uh, everyone had a therapist assigned to them, which you would meet with once a week during school. He would pull you out of class. And... Um, you know, they, they, they monitored everything. I mean, so you could never really tell anyone what was happening. And the letters you would write home, you would have to write with your therapist and uh, in front of your therapist. And he would pretty much tell you what to write. And if you didn't like what he told you to write, you would pay for it. Not directly. You wouldn't know he was doing it to you. But you'd get toilet duty for three weeks. And you'd know because you didn't write that letter. They're not going to tell you right to your face what they're doing to you but it comes back and haunts you. I think you make such an excellent point there because that's retaliation. And you know that that's what you're experiencing when you're in that position, but it can be so hard to connect those two um, events, you know, to other people when you're, you know, in, in hindsight, trying to explain what happened. Um, and, and, and that is coercion and that is, you know, retaliation. So that actually brings me really to our next question. What did you tell your parents at this time? Did they know? Did you try to tell them? No, you, you weren't allowed any visitations. I didn't get a visitation from any family members for my first nine months. Basically, they tell the parents, you're not going to have contact with your son or daughter for nine months other than through the mail. And your parents are game because they've been sold this program. You know, they got Sunset Magazine and went in the back of it and found Pro Canyon School, you know, for rich kids. And <laughs> it fixed everything they needed. Uh, so, no, no, my parents were sold a bill of goods. 
This cycle of manipulation is the key to Provo's continued operation. No one really knows what's going on. By monitoring the mail and blocking communication, they're able to create a wall of silence, one taken by some parents as a sign that the program is working. Luckily, parents and family members like Trisha and Jack's grandmother care more about lack of access than any rules put in place by the school. They pushed through the silence to discover what was really going on, and they chose to believe their children. However, for some parents, it can be hard to admit that they may have been taken advantage of, even years later. Even after the fact, when this was all done, and I went to my father even 20 years ago and told him the story, he didn't believe me. He said, it was made up. He said, that couldn't happen, they can't do that. I said, but dad, they did. You paid $30,000 a year for me to go to their cash. I wasn't on insurance. I wasn't on, it was cash out of his pocket. 30, in, in 1984, you know how much $30,000 was? I got to go into Harvard, you know? And they're paying cash for this treatment. And the more cash you pay them, the better the treatment, right? <laughs> Many survivors talk about quickly learning that the only way to get out or to go home was to work the program. They figure out what is needed to level up and avoid punishment, and then they do those things. If it means not talking to parents, to each other, or staff, they don't. After your first nine months, you were pretty much brainwashed into knowing, and this is pretty much exactly how it works. On your first visit, you're so elated to be in the company of your family, because you've had nothing for the last nine months, you don't want to talk about any of that because there's so much other to talk about. At the facility that I went to, they called this being programized. And it's that moment when you eventually stop fighting and you realize that you're not going home any other way unless you oblige and be the robot that they want you to be. Some people are able to hang on to a fragment of their old self, but I know for me, I left that program different. The even more challenging thing is, how do you go back to normal? Completely cut off from the outside world, those locked inside think they are alone, forgotten as the world outside passes by, trapped in treatment. During some of the most important years of a child's life, they are alone. So what must it be like to finally escape this world, to go back to friends, school, and previous lifetimes? Will it be simple? Easy? or more likely wrought with the long-term effects of time in a program. What happens once the students go home? My therapist said, what would you like to do? And I said, get the hell out of here. And they let me go. And I'll never forget the day one of the counselors drove me to Salt Lake City Airport and put me on that plane. Um, it was like I'd won the lottery. Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, wow. I can't, uh, can't even tell you the feelings that come over you when you know you're getting away from it. You know you're finally getting away from it. And then for the rest of my life, it was with me. I could never get rid of it. Next time on Trapped in Treatment. 
something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.